You're listening to the Road to Wisdom podcast, weaving stories told by wonderful minds about all things motherhood, health, intimacy, politics, nature, and everything in between. Join us on an adventure discovering unique experiences that we can learn from to enhance the ways in which we live. We are your hosts, Chloe and Kishia. Chanterelle Foggin, you are in the studio with us today and we're so excited to have this chat. Um, I just want to paint a little picture for everybody listening. Um, Chanterelle Foggin, Foggin uh, uh, sorry, tongue twister because I'm reading Foggin and Forager in the same thing and it's got me. Um, Chanterelle Foggin, a forager, a wild food educator, a mushroom hunter, edible weeds advocate, cook and food writer. All the amazing things. Um, a little backstory: Kashia and I were actually up on um, my property, and um, we just ran into you up there yeah, foraging with my neighbour. Yeah, definitely. We were like, "Who are you? What are you? What are you doing up here?" And um, yeah, we realised that you were looking for a really special or trying to identify a Mac Daddy. Was it? Oh, yeah. That's that's the um, sort of common name that we've termed on that mushroom, but it was a Macrocybe crasser. So it was oh. a, a big, big mushroom, wasn't it's it? Huge. huge clump of mushrooms. Was, I will, we will share a photo because we yeah. had the camera out and I did get some photos of us using it as a hat and it's as big as our heads. Yeah, so it's massive. It's, it's amazing like this, this foraging thing that we're talking about, it, it brings people together, it builds connections. It's exactly what it's done with us guys. Yeah, it's, absolutely. it's connected us as, as neighbours and as people who share something in common. And, yeah, it's, it's, it, I just find that part of it amazing and also that mushrooms do that I've so many connections that have been made through mushrooms and it's like it's sort of almost like a metaphor of how the mycelium you know connects the trees and the the, Mm. you know the intelligence of 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 the underground as well and have you ever done psilocybin with a mate no (laughs) (laughs) very connected (laughs) um what you're gonna say I know I just I we were talking earlier before we started recording about um braiding sweetgrass but there was another book that had come to mind and I didn't get to mention it it's um is it the secret life of trees or the hidden life of trees yes and they talk about the mycelium network and how that's how trees communicate literally through mycelia and then yeah anyway I mean, it's, yeah, it's an amazing there. world and that it's like the kingdom of fungi has only been actually termed in, in its own right as a kingdom in the 70s. So the space is just like a whole learning place, you know, and we're still like coming to huge understandings. But we're so lucky that there's been a light on, you know, um, fungi and through the media and through all these amazing documentaries that we can just switch on Netflix and watch or whatever. So it's really in people's minds and it's seeming to trend a little bit, which is awesome to bringing that light onto the space where there's so much more work to be done for us to understand really what what these organisms are actually doing. Mm. Yeah. yeah. How did yeah. you how did you get to where you are? I mean, uh, being a wild forager seems like a dream ever way to spend life. Uh, I I'm 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 feel like it's um, you know my life's work, um, but. People ask me this quite often and really I feel like we're all all been foragers since we were children. You know, you and I collected flowers and made little potions and we probably knew where in the, you know, neighbourhood the best fruit trees were and, you know, where to go with our friends to collect things and whatnot. 
So for me, that's what my life was like growing up as well um, in New Zealand. And uh, we, I had uh, hunting and fishing in my family as well. And my mum collected mushrooms and took me in the autumn to do that. So I grew up, I grew up with foraging. But about in 2018, I had sort of a resurge and reconnection and into this interest and this way of life um, by getting into mushrooms. And I became very fascinated with the psilocybin containing mushrooms and what they can do and how people were using them in countries where they're legal. First of all, we probably should say when we're talking about any psilocybin mushrooms that they are illegal to pick out of the ground. So you can see them there, you can, you know, take photos of them in the ground, but once you've actually discharged it from the ground, you're you're handling a Schedule 8 drug. Wow. So Ooh. we need to, um, we need to just be clear, clear yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, everything I hear is... Um, is definitely American based. That's where right. they're starting yeah. to use it. Like maps are using psilocybin for post traumatic stress, and um, I think a whole range of things actually. Yeah, I mean there is a, a lot of work being done, and we do have studies happening in Australia, and, and people are aware that there has recently been a change in the scheduling of psilocybin. So it changed from Schedule Nine to Schedule Eight, um, but we don't currently have any practitioner in Australia who's qualified to administer psilocybin but we're on our way there so that's that's promising and that's a great step in the right direction but uh, a lot a lot of people uh, there, there's been a lot of media attention on that change and I think there has been a little bit of misunderstanding around how available that therapy is as yet it's not really actually available to people in Australia as yet but it's on its way and in, in the countries where there has been you know legislation to allow people to use these types of um you know active mushrooms it's not just ptsd it's treatment resistant depression there's a woman um, marg ross who at the university of melbourne who's doing a study on psilocybin and end of life and they're having people have these um you know death transcendent experiences and able to accept the end of their life process a lot a lot you know easier for themselves um, coming to a place of peace. I mean, uh, so it's th- the the reach is far and wide. Um, but, yeah, it's really – so I started getting interested in that and so I found myself just absolutely fascinated by all fungi and mushrooms and just sort of spread like the mycelium does into all the cracks of my life. And then I realised that I really wanted to learn more about mushrooms and in order to do that I needed to know more about trees – so I got started learning about Australian trees and that led into bush tucker and um, edible weeds and just plants in general because, you know, mushroom season in Australia is not very long. We're in the midst of it right now, which is very, very cool. Um, but when there wasn't mushrooms to forage, I still wanted to forage. So I learned about different things I could forage in the off season and also about which trees and mushrooms had relationships so I could target those spaces um, to um, to forage more edible mushrooms. <laughs> That's so cool. So we're in the northern rivers. What kind of stuff is available? We are literally in a beautiful big food bowl um, in the Northern Rivers. It's a beautiful, like the biodiversity here is amazing. So from, you know, nuts like bunya nut, macadamia nut to things like, you know, native ginger, lily pillies, other like there's a lot of bush fruits that are available, wild raspberries. As I said, we're in our mushroom season right now. So there's a lot of cool edible mushrooms that are about. The best way to learn about those is probably by getting involved with a tour or a group and there's quite a few people who run those in the northern rivers i can mention some of those or we can attach them to the end mm. of the podcast or mm. whatever like that 
Um, but there's also things to forage at the beach like seaweeds. Um, in New South Wales we're really lucky um, and it's legal to forage any seaweed that's detached from the rock. So if you go to the beach after a storm and there's kelp washed up there, you can dry that and powder it and then use that as a salt substitute for your eggs so you're saving money uh, you know, f- on, on good salts and that's got iodine in it and a whole range of really awesome, you know. If you've got it in the basket. Yeah. For those who aren't, who are just listening to yes. this, we actually have a massive um, foraging basket Chantrell's brought in and she has a whole bunch of goodies. So yeah. if you want to tune into the video of it, Chantrell, if you, you can bring it out and yeah. um, you can sure. see on this yeah. camera here. Sure. So, yeah. yeah, like I just, I powder the kelp and use it as a, like a salt substitute as well um things like your lemon myrtle leaves awesome for tea Mm. so you know like there's money to be saved if you're like doing wild ferments at home like fermenting some lily pillies into a wild soda you're not buying kombucha anymore you know what i mean you start sort of saving money there um other things in here persimmons at the moment are in season and love to grow along creeks um, they're pretty beautiful. I have got a couple of apples that I did forage. <laughs> I just got back from Tasmania, so those were actually foraged in Tasmania. Um, but, yeah, and we've got some uh, – one of the cool mushrooms that I've got here is a wine cap or a Strafaria rugos annulata, that one there. Um, and that's a mushroom that, in fact, people do grow and farm themselves, but it will be growing wild in wood chip piles. So it's always worth a swerve over the side of the road when you see a, a, a wood chip pile on the side of the road to check out what's there. Um, and it's like, you know, you there is a certain amount of sort of fear or mycophobia in Australia around mushrooms. Unfortunately for most of us, when we were little, in that magic of you know finding fungi started someone said oh don't touch that or don't you know don't go near that and and so there's this fear that we've generationally been handed down but there isn't actually any any um, danger in touching any fungi Um, only if you ingest it would you um, have any problems and and become unwell if it was a fungi that contained any toxins uh, so, yeah, letting children touch fungi and explore it is a, a wonderful way to encourage their engagement with nature as well. Um, and, we, I mean, it's so fascinating how they just pop up and disappear and all of that. that that's part of the magic of, of fungi. So, yeah, uh, again, getting involved with foraging groups or walks um, and there's quite a lot of groups online as well. We run our own group, Forage and Grow New South Wales, and it's an awesome community on Facebook where we've got, Uh, mycologists and botanists from around Australia and they're sort of you know it's we're we're a safety network for each other uh, where you can get plants or mushrooms ID'd on the page and we also have a lot of fun and Mm. play around be a bit stupid that's so cool what's the I mean like how many poisonous mushrooms do we have I mean is it likely that if we were foraging and we're like oh this looks like something and we eat it can I preface this because I had an experience with Rue when he was just crawling and we were at um we were at one of the cafes in Tally Valley the eco village one and it had just been raining and these like white ball mushrooms had sprouted up all over the place and I wasn't paying attention (laughs) and then I looked over at him and he had one in his mouth and he was chewing on it and I freaked out yeah. I'm like how do I know if it's poisonous or not how do I know like 
I because I had no idea and I'm calling a friend who's a pediatrician and he's he was like you know what I'm sure it'll be fine the worst that's going to happen is he's going to have a little trip <laughs> like oh my god <laughs> I mean I I I, I, I I do advocate um you know making sure of what you're um you've got on your hands so one of like our foraging sort of guidelines is you know if in doubt, leave it out. Um, so unless you're actually completely 100% sure about what you've got in front of you, don't eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 this it becomes a, a process of just learning because, I mean, you didn't know a tomato was a tomato until you were told 100 times by different people, this is food, this is a tomato. So it's the same sort of theory with the, with the fungi. Um, and, you know, person-to-person learning is amazing wave. To, to, to actually share the knowledge as well. But there are a lot of great books. We have fungi um, resources available to us in Australia, which is specific to our areas. We have the Queensland Mycology Society. They um, put out fungi flips, which are really great, easy to learn ID charts. Um, there's also a couple of great books by Australian mycologists that start out with learning edible species and their poisonous lookalikes. So that's the first way to go. Um, so one thing I really encourage people to get involved in as well, it's a real nerd out here, but um, <laughs> if if they, uh, you know, if you do find the fungi stuff interesting and you want to get involved in it, you can become a citizen scientist through iNaturalist. Using the app iNaturalist is a great way to start logging your finds and adding, uh, you know, information to Australian mycota, what we know about what mushrooms we have because only 6% around or around, don't quote me, I think it's around 6% of our mushrooms in Australia have been named or scientifically described. So we've this. it's a huge space of learning. Um, so when you're actually like putting your photos onto iNaturalist, you're helping our scientists and mycologists to know what's out there and where it's growing. And then what you can do on the iNaturalist app is actually see what species are growing in your area. So then you can know what to target and you you can Mm. be like, okay, this is the one we're looking for. Then learn the poisonous lookalikes. Um, Join into the Forage and Grow New South Wales group or Australian New Zealand Fungi ID or... You know, one of the big groups that, I mean, I know Facebook's a bit naff and nobody's into it anymore, but it, it does have these wonderful platforms for community engagement in the group styles, uh, which a lot of the foraging people in Australia, you know, engaged in that. Um, so, mm. yeah, that's, that's, that would be my suggestion for starting out for learning for ID. Leave, if in doubt, leave it out. Get that um, involved in something local, um, a, a walk or in a group that's local uh, and start with learning one edible species that you're looking for that will be growing in your area and learn the poisonous lookalikes to rule out. Um, you know, in Australia we do have um, some some poisonous mushrooms that we need to look out for and some poisonous plants. Um, so the poison hemlock grows and it looks very similar to Queensland lace, which is a member of the carrot family. So that's that's a plant that most foragers need to know about as well because that can be, you know, even touching that can be dangerous. Um, also, you know, we do have in New South Wales a couple of stinging plants in our bush too. So you just, you know, mm. knowing a couple of those plants can be really helpful and handy. And it's great, you know, bush education for kids as well. Mm. Uh, you so actually run a homeschool yeah, foraging yeah. group, don't you? Yeah, so I've got a group of 
teens and uh, uh, tweens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, we're doing a year of foraging together. Mm. Uh, so we've, it's a one abundant year foraging homeschool class and um, we meet around every six weeks through the year exploring different topics from urban foraging to fungi. Um, yeah, and, we, and at the end they will have a student-led assessment that they'll present to me and it will be something that they're interested in about foraging. So, yeah, it's mm. super cool to be involved in some kids yeah. like, you know, started their wild food journey. That'd be so Because it'll be something that they'll keep for the rest of their lives, you know. And I feel like it's so necessary for all children to know this. Like I, I went to a private school and why don't I know what is toxic in my environment and what we can actually eat. Like this, it seems like such basic knowledge that we should all have. And yeah, Chandra, let's get you Do into you the schools. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm, I think there is, you know, more and more um, people wanting to know. Like that since COVID, there's been this real returning to kind of, okay, well, if I can't go to the supermarket and I can't get plants at Bunnings to plant – what do I do? Mm. We're good. We're, what will we eat? Mm. And so people became more interested in it. And I know there are schools with, you know, bush, um, they're planting out little bush tucker gardens in the playgrounds now and, and, and having little bush schools and wild crafting schools and things like that, that, you know, there are more and more of that stuff coming. Mm. So thank goodness that's awesome, isn't it? Do you think like it? in our environments, like let's just say the Northern Rivers, do you think there's enough food to – even if we had to propagate, like, is there enough? Like, if we all just reduced the intake of food? Well, I think we just, uh, we did touch on this just before mm. we started recording. And like I said, like, I, you know, if we moved into, I th- like, you know, I think it was only like about 30,000 years ago that we like stopped primarily being for hunter-gatherer foragers. And we moved into bigger groups and it was hard to feed people in bigger groups. And in, in numbers there was safety and, 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 and community and all of that. So it's, you know, you'd need to not be in a normal full-time job to mm. be um, feeding yourself or, you know, a couple of people in your family with foraging. And, yeah, and that's why we have the forage and grow idea as well because, uh, you know, you you need to supplement what you were foraging with some things that you would be growing to be able to provide yourself with a, a really balanced nutrition. Um, but the thing is about these foods as well that are growing in the wild is that they're, they're superfoods, you know. They're packed with vitamins um, and antioxidants and, you know, liver cleansing qualities, you know. and Adaptogenics. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, yeah. if we even look at some of the medicinal mushrooms, um, and we have, you know, some more scientific information around those now to know that there's, you know, so much. Do we have health. those more common medicinal mushrooms growing here, like the reishis and the... So that's a little bit of a um, controversial one in ooh. the foraging world. Ooh, ooh. So get into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a species of reishi. So the, the genus of the mushroom that the reishi uh, sits under is called Ganoderma. And we have our own native species of Ganoderma. We have several of them in Australia. Um, we have some, in fact, that look very similar to the reishi. I think it's lucidum. Um, that that's the Chinese reishi. So we have some that look, you know, visually very similar, um, but we don't know how they look under a microscope. We do not have the DNA sequencing or the the scientific work 
to know if they are in fact containing similar or or um, the same compounds and qualities. Mm. So there are a lot of people out there at the moment who do collect our Ganoderma species, our native Ganoderma species for for medicine uh, and they make tinctures or powders or, you know, uh, that's normally the two, the tincture or the powder. Um, my thinking is like let's leave it in the wild, let's leave it there until we do know let's, because we need these mushrooms to also be there as well for these future mycologists and, and, and botanists and plants to be there so that they can figure out what, what's going on. So if people are just taking from the wild, uh, you know, that's, you know, and I guess they not have the a best role. outcome. Like the mushroom is there to do something. What is it doing? And we just before we started recording, we were talking about braiding sweetgrass, which I always refer to, but she puts it in such a way that the trees, they're talking to each other. They discuss, you know, what the bounty is going to look like if one tree's sick, then they're all sick. If it's a good time, they'll all have a good. Do you know what I mean? So I'd love to hear what is the mushroom doing and how does leaving it there actually impact our ecology? Yeah, well, I mean, we mushrooms are uh, and fungi are just vital to our survival. We'd be completely covered in in leaf litter and, and organic matter. Uh, if we didn't have these guys doing their work, I, I sometimes call them the little rotters, even the little mushrooms, you know, they're rotting down things. They're breaking down so that other processes can happen. It's a huge part of the cycle of that, you know, the life and death cycle of, of the world, which keeps us actually going. Um, but different mushrooms have different jobs. Different fungi have different jobs in, in, in our ecology and not not all of it's fully understood yet and there's been a lot of um i suppose you know um media attention on the sharing of information between trees and and fungi the the mycelial network um you know and we do know that they do have a connection and that they're sharing sugars and if one tree is you know um, needing more nutrient than often mycelium will help to send that sh- the sugars on to another tree or something like that. Um, but we don't, again, we don't fully understand it. So I can't speak more on it than that really because I feel like, yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's a very evolving space and it's, yeah. I feel like it's also a Indigenous knowledge as well, which is, you know, I'd love to speak to Robin Walkemer about yeah. this. But, um, I, um, I always imagine it as like the mycelial network and I think it's because I've listened to a fair bit of um, Paul Stamets and I I always imagine the mycelial network being as vast as like the stars in the universe and it's just like all that interconnectedness. It's just under us instead of above us which sounds real space cadet (laughs) now that I'm saying it out loud. I mean people (laughs) make all sorts of um you know like you know people compare mycelial network to the internet network and how (laughs) you know like there's so many kind of um things like that so yeah you're definitely not space cadetting there (laughs) but I I'm I love that I in braiding sweetgrass how she talks about you know how trees all fruit in different places but at the same time and all of that and it's the same with mushrooms like you know there there must be some intelligence that I mean I'm not aware of what it is but you know that you know same mushroom is popping up in this place as it is in this place you know what I mean um so they're they're sharing information doesn't she put doesn't she put it like the wind carries 
the message to them or something. It's like I can't quite really remember. It's the, I mean, the way she explained as a as a um, scientist, the way that she um, poetically um, explains things is just. I think it's part of the magic and touching part of that book, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it's so beautifully, I, and I haven't read this book, <laughs> just hearing it from you guys, but it does so beautifully encapsulate what nature is. It's just interconnectedness. And even if you can't There's see one thing from the next, like they're so connected. There is no separateness. Yeah, is there? There's no yeah. separate science and art or whatever. They are the same thing. It's all it's And all which together. we're a part of too. Yeah. Which is why I asked about um, if we had those medicinal mushrooms growing because you know we both really love adding medicinal mushrooms to our morning it's trendy isn't it yeah like all the new tropics and you know all (laughs) of the things exactly and so you know I often wonder if I contradict myself because you know I really believe that what's needed for us is in our we're a part of that in our ecology in our you know 50k radius or whatever it may be I am a big believer in that yeah so I wonder like I understand these mushrooms are wildly harvested from China, but are they good for me? Like once it's travelled all the way over here and I'm in my environment with my light codes and my messages and whatever's coming out from the earth for me with my bare feet, is this necessary? And I think that's why you do get people who are, you know, collecting and harvesting and and making their own tinctures or powders because they're feeling the same way as you. Um, They're wondering what is the product they're getting but what you can do is you can buy um, – you can inoculate your own logs at home that you've maybe, you know, had to fell a tree in your yard or, or, or some maintenance or collect logs from someone's property that you know. And you can inoculate that log with the Chinese reishi um you know, um, spores and grow your own reishi, your Sorry, own what? Chinese reishi at home. <laughs> where do we where do we get these spores from? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, there's a few there's a few good mushroom suppliers around Australia online. I like Aussie mushroom supplies. There's um, Wollumbin gourmet mushrooms. Um, he, Gary is awesome. He's at the um, the Merbar markets every week. He sells um, the shiitake and the reishi I feel like inoculants. These, they go to my markets too, where I shop. Maybe, yeah. But there's there's heaps of awesome mushroom suppliers, wow. Cause companies we've, around Australia. We've definitely spoken about this. We're like, I wonder if we could, because you know we can propagate a plant. Yeah. How does propagating or growing our own mushrooms look like? So we have that abundance. Yeah, which, I mean, and that's a, a super fun part of the whole mycology thing. That's just a whole nother way, another alley i only have um sort of small like touched on that a little bit last year the cultivation of gourmet mushrooms like oyster mushrooms um lion's mane so you can grow all those ones at home and it's actually pretty easy again there's really cool organizations that have online mushroom growing courses milkwood i don't know if you're familiar with them they're a permaculture group um they have um really awesome information about foraging in australia about um, what's legal, what's not, um, about what might be available seasonally, that sort of thing. They also teach mushroom cultivation at home, really simple techniques. They have online courses for this stuff. So they're a really mm. awesome resource. Sounds um, like something we should... Milkwood, yeah, they're really cool. They live down in Tasmania. They're amazing. Wow. Mm. Uh, something... Sorry, you want to go? No, go. go for it. I was just going to say something else that we were talking about before we hit record was um, weaving and... Um, connecting with indigenous 
um, locals and sitting down and weaving together was a great way to learn about this stuff. And I, I just kind of thought quickly, is there a respect system for foraging? Like are we to pick certain things and leave other things or, you know, within this the season's framework? Yeah, definitely for sure. I mean we have foraging ethics that um, encourage and, you know, teach people when they come along to a workshop this is sort of what, how we start out with you know acknowledgement of country and acknowledgement of the fact that a lot of these foods aren't just you know foods to people there are sacred um, medicines totems um, they have energy uh, so yeah the first and firm foremost rule is only take what you need and that comes you know from a place of respect for nature and that that is a first, you know, First Nations type of view of looking at how to, how to forage. Um, but then on the flip side of that, straight away attached to that one is this idea of not pick shaming anybody because we don't know who you're providing for. So there could be somebody out collecting mushrooms and they could be taking several baskets or boxes and they could be sharing that with several generations of their family who are maybe perhaps Polish and that's actually their their food um, tradition and it's part of their generational sharing so, and uh, that's just an example, but there could be many examples of people collecting from the wild um, and taking what they need and what they need looks different to what you might need. Um, so, yeah, there's this idea of, you know, only taking what you need, leaving some for the birds and the bees, assessing an area, if a space, um, and getting to know your patch, your places, you know, um, looking out for signs, you know, if you are foraging roadside, which I do, um, looking out for signs of places being sprayed by council or whatnot it's pretty easy to see when something has been sprayed um and looking out for the area as well like has it been through a flood recently is it recovering from a fire caring about that stuff that's again part of that seasonal and and part of the the turning of the times in nature and and the respect that you you give to it through can, that. can you go a bit deeper into that like if if you were foraging in an area like the one we're in right now that was recovering from a flood or yeah. from a fire, why um, why would we not want to be taking too much from that? Yeah, well, particularly in relation to how the floods affected our mycelium in the northern rivers, a lot of it obviously was just washed away um, and a lot was drowned. It got too wet and and, and it wasn't, you know, my, it needs a good balance of, of wet and dry um, so we, we've lost quite a bit. It's going to take a little while for it to rebuild. So, um, yeah, when you're in an area, if you see a mushroom and there's just one of them, possibly thinking, should I let that be there to spore so that for next season there's going to be five or six there rather than take that one to take home and really it's possibly not going to actually be enough to feed you or yourself anyway. So thinking in terms of um, looking about, being aware, what's around. If it's a rare mushroom, thinking about conservation and, and thinking about like, you know, future generations having these mushrooms there and these items there. So yeah, again, if you go to a tree and there's only one fruit on it or only a few fruit, perhaps take notice of that where that tree is, come back next year. Trees often have one really good year fruiting one year off. Like, for example, our bunya, uh, which is one of those, you know, really sacred, ancient foods that deserves a deep 
reverence and respect. Um, it has a good year every three or four years. Um, so we just had a really amazing Bunya bounty last year. What do you do with about, uh, Bunyas? Oh, what can't you do? Jeez. <laughs> I oh feel God. like Kim, who's our neighbour, said that she was like, you know, she makes cakes out of bunya. I'm like, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, we, I, I, I can, yeah, I considered. Sorry. Brownie, no, she said brownie. You made yeah, a chocolate brownie, brownie. Chocolate brownie. Make, you, can, you can dry the nuts and make flour with them and then use that as like a gluten-free substitute. It, they, it has this high piney kind of note to it, which is just beautiful. So think about a potato meets a pine nut and they have a baby and it's mm. a bunya nut. Mm. Um, and Cute. Yeah. So... <laughs> Bunya nut gnocchi was like has mm. become my sort of signature dish. We did that at um, up at the um, at Pottinger restaurant for the chef and the forager degustation we did last wow. year. We one course we did the bunya nut gnocchi. Can we go there by the way? It looks delicious. <laughs> That's so good. I had Mikey the chef uh, actually come to my place this morning to pick up some bunya nuts because they are you know there's not much around this year. So and it's that sharing. It's like oh mate, do you have some? Yeah, I do. Come over. Mm. I'll give you a couple, you oh, know. Amazing. So, again, it's just how foraging keeps just building and building and building community. Yeah, it's yeah. the notion of community and... Yeah, and people ask where can I go foraging as well. Uh, that's mm. a question. So it's important to let people know that we don't take any matter at all from our national parks. That's super important. Um, um, but also... Um, really cool to know that you can find out from your local council about your local nature reserve and what the actual laws are around that. Just ringing up the council is a good way to do that if you're worried about, you know, whether it's legal to forage in your local parks and and, um, and nature reserves. A lot of state forests are fine, like, for example, pine forests and taking the kids out to the pine forest for a mushroom hunt is one of the most magical things to do. It's like... Do we have one around here? I know uh, there's no, one in we've, Victoria. We've got we've got pine forests, but they're a little bit further out. So you know, you're going out to probably Stanthorpe for a weekend. But in the winter time, Stanthorpe, go to the truffle mm. farm. You know, you go get to the apple places, eat some mm. cheese, drink some wine, <laughs> go oh, mushroom foraging. That sounds <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Well, I normally do the mother daughter annual pine forest um, hunt, which is when's that? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, my mum can't come with me this year, so I'm, I've been trying to recruit just anybody to come uh, with me. I'll come. <laughs> I also have daughters. Yeah, will come. Yeah, great. Okay, <laughs> we'll just do all the mums and daughters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so and there is um pine forest in Armadale as well, which is another beautiful autumn winter trip to like it's you know the highlands northern highlands of new south wales and you know you get all the beautiful colors of the deciduous trees you get rose hips and blackberries and all the different things to forage up there which is so beautiful too um so yeah new south wales is an amazing place to forage just like yeah we're so lucky is it like seasonal or do you feel like if you're really connecting into the seasons and you've got your eye out, there's always there's something. There's always something, yeah. Mm. Um, it definitely is. I'll just go back to where people can forage as well. I was wanted to mention that um, private property is, is, is the best place to be able to forage. But not every person has access to land. And, and so it kind of gives this feeling of maybe privileged people only being able to access this. But again, going back to how this builds connection is when you go past somewhere and you see that lemon tree and it's overladen with fruit and they're falling on the ground, go knock on the door. 
and say, hey, would you mind if I took a few lemons? You'll probably get a smile and someone will say, oh, I can't wait to see what you do with them. And the return of some lemon cordial or lemon butter or whatever that is, is again, it's building more and more connection for people and it's giving you this amazing sense of feed, like, you know, good feedback in your brain where you do, not only are you like using stuff from the wild that might just go on to waste, um, but, you know, it's finding food is literally what we're made to do. Uh, we get this huge dopamine hit when we find, you know, something to cook with um, that, you know, is growing in the wild or being neglected left somewhere. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think that that's a really wonderful way to start out, you know. And even walking down your suburban streets, a lot of people plant lily pillies as hedges. So you'll see the lily pilly fruit just falling to the ground, you know, and they make amazing jams, amazing vinegars, amazing cordials. You can dry them out, put them into cakes, you know. There's so many things that can be done. Um, and again, just like most people don't even even know that that might be edible. Mm. They're growing something there on their front you know, verge that is edible. Yeah. Um, also really, you know, good to note that trees that are overhanging fences or, um, you know, that sort of thing are fair game. <laughs> it's actually legally <laughs> oh. a thing. You're allowed to pick oh like... Oh, my god. So, you know, I, one of my... one of my Like, I'm a bit of an unrepentant forager sometimes. <laughs> um, one of my elderflower tree spots is like it's literally hanging over someone's front yard. They don't even know that it's elderflower <laughs> or elderberries, you know. And I, I just go there every once. I don't take everything but I go there once in a while and, and use the flowers to make, you know, elderflower champagne or cordials or something like that, you know. I haven't returned one to them. Where I should <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's legal to be able to actually take something that's overhanging a fence. It's probably just going to fall and, mm. and, and get left anyway. We actually have a few blocks away which we found during um, during one of the lockdowns. We were gifted just before the lockdowns, uh, like I think it ended up being 20 silkworms. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And I see your mulberry yeah, tree there. Yeah. I already spotted <laughs> that. <laughs> We've got straight out two here, two on the other side and one out the front. Um, we're a little mulberry obsessed yes. here. But before these guys were big enough that we could pick the leaves, we had to forage for leaves for these silkworms that grow and eat at astronomical rates. And uh, we went around looking like foraging around here and found a tree that was over someone's fence and it was it's the biggest tree and not only were you getting these massive leaves but the berries the, oh my god the berries and I, like we'd come back just purple stained like the kids are just purple and purple I just I think ruined. mulberry is actually like when I have people come you know to workshops and you know you remind them that they used to forage mulberries as children when they were walking home from school or whatnot and they're like oh yeah <laughs> Mulberries mm. and the leaves are edible as well for people. Oh, really? Yeah, so oh, you can go. steam them and use them as Do a you green. Have to steam them? Um, you, I would because they're just they're not like when you're getting in touch with wild foods as well. A lot of the time you're using your hands and it's visceral. You're feeling things when you're touching the leaf. It tells you like this is leaf needs to be steamed. It's, got it's not. On it. It's fibrous. Well, it's fibrous. Yeah. It's tougher. It's going to need a steam or yeah. whatever. Um, one of the sort of advice is around collecting you know edible um weeds for greens like for example dock or 
dandelion leaves. They're two that can be quite, you know, most people are similarly aware of what they are. You know, you're looking for the most tender young leaves to use because they're going to be less bitter and more palatable in the mouth as well. But a lot of people do use the um, mulberry leaves like, you know, a betel leaf, you know, to wrap food and so just mm. steam the leaf and then, you know, whatever you've got, your little veggies sliced up and, and roll that the leaf up and dip yep. into a satay sauce or something mm. like that as well. Yum. Yeah. So, Yum. Uh, the, yeah, so many uses when you start to open your eyes up to just like foods all around us, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just well, started looking outside. Yeah, going, we've got some bananas behind you. So, <laughs> <laughs> got some bananas there, some uh, yeah. passion fruits. No, I just I thought that chocos. I was like, I think that's a bleeding heart tree. But I, I did. I thought for a moment, I thought, is that a coastal hibiscus? Because the cottonwood or the coastal hibiscus is a beautiful tree, and the flowers are edible, and they're just so yummy. Mm. Um, and it's one that grows like really prolifically in the northern rivers, and most people know it. Also, the bark um, was traditionally used by local Bundjalung peoples for making string and and um, using for fiber which is a really cool thing as well getting back to the weaving stuff and all yeah. of that yeah yeah mm, are you still doing that um, I have a couple of baskets that are unfinished if you want to just look over there there's a whole thing of projects that are unfinished oh, crafting yeah. projects <laughs> <laughs> no i'm very familiar with that yeah. mm. could you um tell us about the weaving that you told us before we yeah well, i was just saying that like um i have tried to engage with my local indigenous community in a way where I haven't come in just asking for their knowledge and their their wisdoms and their sacred you know stuff um and to go in and build connection and and community again um I've been really lucky to just sit with some women weaving um and that's been an awesome way um, and when women weave together, you know, there's that circling of talking, of moving around subjects and, of you know, sharing into the spiral. Um, and, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. And, I, yeah, I found it to be a, a way that I've been able to build connection with people that are Indigenous locally and then find out more from them about their plants and, and foods and medicines as well. That's so interesting because we were yesterday in the conversation we were having, it was about, um, you know, like we have these traditions and ceremonies and stuff that come from America and um, China and India and places like that. And we were like, what's the equivalent for healing modalities in Australia? But that kind of just paints a picture of what would be our version of women's gatherings and women's circles is sitting and weaving with an elder and you know pining to learn that knowledge and i feel like that you can just the meaning of weaving with your Your weaving wisdom which is funny because we were going to name our podcast (laughs) weaving wisdom someone already stole it (laughs) (laughs) and they didn't do much with it by the way (laughs) that happens so well yeah but no like yeah i think it is like it's just an intrinsic thing and just to sit and and watch is part of you know understanding someone else's culture um we i find i think we tend to be very focused on goals and getting what we need out of things but there is this idea of just letting things unfold or unravel um and and letting time be that we don't have the same sort of um ideas around time and space and 
and you know I was super lucky um, to recently have Uncle Frank um, and his uh, Bunjalung man from Fingalhead uh, come for our homeschool class and do a smoking ceremony to welcome the children and talk on his connection to the plants and um, foods and medicines and you know he was saying you know it's not just like a lot of people just like what can I get out of this what can I take from this plant but again it's just a reciprocal nature of a relationship that there is an encouraging towards understanding and it's difficult for us because we kind of don't have the framework to do that but yeah sitting and, and spending time with people and 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 that adds to understanding and, and gaining of of sharing of information that's really a really beautiful point actually and yeah to bring it back down to I mean everyone's talking about slow life and slow living but it's not really because you still have appointments and engagements and commitments and everything's so time based but when it comes to getting that inherent ancient wisdom yeah. it's not about taking it is it's yeah. like you want to be you know, weeks, months, years around a campfire with the people who know it and have actual conversations and through the conversations absorb that knowledge and yeah. and it will last and you get, yeah, that deeper understanding that's not just what can I take, what is mm. what is poisonous, what is not poisonous. I think it's a very white man way. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh. And there's nothing slow about going backwards and um, embodying that knowledge either. Mm. Like there's no sitting around doing nothing. It's like... No, but it is. A bit, I think the the learning process can be the learning process around foraging. Is this the idea of why I wanted the homeschool to be over, split over the year, not just one class? Is because it is a slower learning. Because I mean, you think about the time where you were learning about what foods you could put into your mouth between zero and five. That took five years. Yeah. So we're 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 going. You know, we're taking it back to that level. So it can it can take some time. But it's a, it's a thing that will stay with you for the rest of your life as well. You'll never look at the world the same once you're like, that's food. I could use that. Wow, what if I got that and put those two things together? How would they taste? <laughs> it's a really beautiful thing to actually have because, you know, a lot of people at the moment are worried about all, all sorts of different things. And one of them is just feeling really insecure in a big, scary world and not feeling like, you could actually take care of yourself. And I feel like once you do gain that little bit of knowledge, be like, I'm actually all right. Like I could actually feed myself for a while. Like I could, I could. I think it just know. comes back to, you know, people feeling this root disconnection. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, this foraging journey, this wild food journey, it, it gives you an opportunity to really be in your authenticity as a human being. Yeah, it's like, like what oh, else are we wow. To do? Yeah, exactly. And like I was saying before, you know, when you're finding a food in the wild, you're creating this amazing feedback loop in your brain of dopamine hit and you're feeling so good and so like high from, mm. you know, like I I remember, you know, the first time I'd been looking, I had been looking for chanterelle mushrooms for like years, for like two and a half years I'd been looking for this mushroom. She'd been eluding me everywhere. And the first time I found I was like, I was literally like, Hi. I was like screaming. Are you sure? It was a <laughs> <laughs> no, it was definitely a, a cantharellus. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was like I was just so excited. I was dancing and, <laughs> you know, it was just out of control, that's, awesome feeling like. That's got to be part of the me medicine of 
eating locally as well. Like the hundred like percent going to the farmers markets go, yeah. is yeah. similar. But even like yeah, if you're out in the wild, like the walk mm. to get to yeah. the foraging part, like yeah, you know, that's, it's all that's of all that part is medicine. of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Spending more time in nature, knowing what's around you. Yeah, like it's it's. I mean, it's great for your physical health. Just being more active every day. Um, you know, mm. mental health, everything. It's it's a it's it's been a real healing um, thing for me in my life. Um, you know, I've had my struggles with my own mental health stuff, and um, at times, um, I in my therapy, I was actually recommended, you know, to start to try and build up this catalog or this kind of you know list of all these things that I love doing, and that was a, a part of doing the foraging in 2018 when I started getting into the foraging stuff again was, you know, I was using it as actual therapy mm-hmm. complementary to my CBD, C, um, CBT therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy yep. um, with my therapist. So it's, it, it literally is healing for people. <laughs> Something I actually do want to just um, touch on and I'm not sure if this is in your scope of um, knowledge but because uh, psilocybin is you know, and microdosing and that's such a big thing at the moment. Um, Especially in this area. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, like yeah, it is. We've, I've spent a lot of time in Canada and it's obviously, you know, like almost every second person is microdosing on a daily. And as a person who's studied, you know, health quite extensively, I often wonder, I, I, well, I don't think that we should be doing it on a daily, but obviously people are really obsessed, like they really just – want that feeling there yeah. es- it's an escape route right for their reality i oh. mean there's sort of the there's kind of the two ideas running there i suppose and like there's no denying like although these substances are illegal in australia there's no denying that we have an underground community and we have this underground um culture of our own in australia around psilocybin containing mushrooms um and there are people using them for microdosing or macrodosing even and whatnot. Um, so there is also important to note, I think, for people who, you know, are learning about that and you can do your own research. It's very easy to find out about the microdosing sort of um, schedules. But uh, as humans, we actually will build up a tolerance to psilocybin very quickly. So you can't do it every day. Mm. Uh, even the microdosing, um, the way it's set out is normally one day off, two days, one day on, two days off um, sort of scenario. Um, but there's different protocols depending on whom you, you know, research. You know, um, mm-hmm. what you're trying um, to achieve. Stamets has his own type of microdosing um, protocol that includes the, the B, the B vitamins as well and mm. the lion's mane as well. So, yeah, I mean, people will do their own research on that but yeah you will you can't take psilocybin every day and expect it to get you high if people are taking it to escape that's the other thing that I think um, is important for people to understand is that these substances are going to you know exacerbate what you're going through as well it's not always this rainbow sunshine experience Um, you know scene and setting has a lot to do with with um, how your experience is going to play out as well. That's what the research suggests. Um, and so, yeah, being in the right place in the state of mind as well to have these type of journeys that are, you know, being breakthrough experiences for people or whatnot or, you know, they, they you know, there is a lot of inf- 
important um, emphasis on the intention mm. and what intention you have as well. Um, so there is this whole, you guys probably know, and a lot of people in Northern Rivers, you know, have done the hot skip and a jump. There's this whole, you know, tourist industry around entheogens like ayahuasca and mushrooms. So you can go to other countries now and book these tours where you're going into an ayahuasca ceremony or into a mushroom ceremony. Um, and, you know, so uh, there's a lot of ethical questions around this whole industry as well. And as it develops in Australia, there is groups already looking at making sure that we have the right ethical things in place so that there isn't abuses of power or things like that which have been happening you know, to mm. people when they're going to these ayahuasca retreats or mushroom retreats mm. and stuff like that. So hopefully our community will take longer to introduce this to, you know, um, to being a legal thing, but we'll have the right type of ethics and code of practice around these things. But it's not to say, and you know, anyone who's at least any aware knows that we have underground, you know, ayahuasca ceremonies in and around the Northern Rivers and mushrooms ceremonies happening in and around the northern rivers at the moment as I well toad and peyote and <laughs> yeah there's a lot yeah yeah <laughs> that heard them all I, I, I think we've got our own small <laughs> tourist industry for people coming within australia to do things like that in this wow. area as well so yeah and th- there cool. are, there are people who um we have this lots of groups out there at the moment um australian psychedelic society enthogenesis australis um these are Uh, people who are not only, you know, looking at helping to change legislation but they're building this code of practice and looking at harm minimisation for the fact that we, you know, there's no denying that there's people out there doing it even though it's illegal. Um, But we can, yeah, we can minimise harm for people and we can um, try and encourage a certain um, level of practice and standards in our own own community. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I'd love to go back to one point you brought up earlier about um, when council's spraying <laughs> yeah because how i mean i know that usually what they're spraying is water soluble um it's more or less glyphosate is it not yeah 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 and i mean if we're foraging and you know we don't want to be consuming glyphosate yeah. or <laughs> giving that to our children while yeah. they're developing yeah how would we go about avoiding that like what's the yeah. Well, you can ring up your council and ask them about what they use when they spray roadsides as well to get a really clear idea. Um, first thing I always say to people is like, I know there are a lot of people probably like you guys and myself who try to, you know, go out of their way to eat organic, but most people are going to the supermarket and buying sprayed, you know, vegetables and grains and stuff yeah, that have been, anyway. yeah, they're eating uh, pesticides and, and herbicides and they don't even think, but then as soon as something's side off the road, oh, got this huge distrust about that. But yeah, again, there are places that where they don't spray, like for example, I live in a small village um, in the very northern, northern rivers right up by the border and parts of Kobukai, they don't spray. Um, they'll come along with a big grader kind of machine and just cut back all of the stuff. So it's about knowing your spots, looking. It's pretty obvious when you can see that line of dead grass, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But it's also the thing too, I find like there are like these marginalised areas. The more you start opening your eyes to these like 
small sides of the roads areas, you'll start to notice bigger areas that are these like forgotten about areas and there's no spraying happening in those more larger sort of sides of the road areas where it's down like little sides of the roads and things like that. So just getting to know your area and exploring and just being more aware and opening your eyes is really important. But again, I think people freak out a lot when they don't even think about it in mm. their own like lives yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. like that's but actually what you're consuming all the time if you go to your general and most market. like I, I can say even myself there's times where I'm you know time poor and we you end up at the supermarket you're eating those foods as well mm. um so yeah I'm not I'm not saying mm. I'm totally better than that no, not yeah. at all but um yeah I think the the most important thing too is just having even a look in your own backyard, for example, you can control what's happening in there. I guarantee you there's edible weeds in your own backyard. There's like... We're going to take you out yeah, there we can after go out this. There, yeah, <laughs> and have a look. And, you know, the more and more you start to use them, um, the more that they seem easier to use and to do. And it, it does take that little bit more time to like go out and say to everyone, hey, let's shut off the TV and do half an hour of foraging greens in the backyard, everyone, give them their own little, you know, bowl or basket, um, some little safe scissors to snip things with, um, you know, and and getting them involved in, in their food. Kids love it. Yeah. And there's such amazing pattern recognisers, children, like it's like their brains are made for it. Um, they love recognising patterns. It's a game of, you know, hide and seek. And mm. we all need games in our lives as well, you know. Um, even as adults. So it brings that playfulness back to us and playing with our food, mm. which, you know, I don't know One why. One of my favourite things to teach my kids was when we were spending time in Toronto as all the ice would melt away and it would get a little bit warmer, the dandelion would pop up and teach them the significance of why that was so important for spring and what was happening to our bodies. Like we needed that for bile traction yeah. and all these things. And they're like, oh, my, oh. Like it was just – they're just such light-up moments yeah. and you just don't forget them. Exactly. Like kids love it. I've got mm. one of one of my best friends um, that I've got into foraging. Like nobody can be around me without having to do this now. <laughs> but uh, her children actually have made this foraging board game where, you know, you've got to go around the board and collect these edible weeds and once you get a collection – of the right things to make something you level up. Like these kids are amazing, wow. you know. They just like blows my mind what they can do. Well, well, my one-year-old, we – because um, my kids go to a Steiner school here and from the car park walking the kids into school, we always pass a lily pilly tree yeah. and every time we pass it, my one-year-old is like more, more, more on points and wants me to grab her a lily pilly. It's very bare at the moment. So. But they do love it though, don't they? They love like, it and, yeah. she, and she'll will be out walking around here and she'll be she'll start pointing to a lily pilly tree going more, more, more that I've never seen before yeah. and I look around. It's the pattern recognising. They're insane. amazing at it. They're really, really good. Kids are amazing at it. Yeah. My kids are awesome at finding mushrooms up and over. <laughs> They're like, is this a good one? I'm like, oh, God, what have we done here? <laughs> oh, anyway. But all, but like I'd just be like, all, all mushrooms are good ones. All mushrooms you know are good. Me? Like yeah. they are all got something mm. to do um, in in the in their place in, in the nature. So they're all good. That's what I think. Yeah. So much to learn. Absolutely. Well, it's so, it's so, so good to have had you in here today, Chanterelle. Oh, it's thank you so much for having me. I want to say that after you <laughs> introduced me. Thank you so much for 
having me here and to talk about this and yeah, it's so lovely to know you both from yeah. from from mushroom from, from mushroom. foraging. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's been brilliant. I I feel I've like gotten this so is, much out of this. Yes, yeah, and um, now I just want we to just keep have going. to meet up for another forage on your at your place sometime mm. soon. I mean, there's a, probably a bounty up there that I'm so unaware of, and I've been really observing it. Like we've got a bit of a weed problem, but I've observed that there's only weeds in places where there's no native trees and things like that. And I'm mm. like, oh, there's a story here and I'm just figuring it all out. And, yeah, the more time I spend there just walking around and now we have this awesome ranger which is taking us off the beaten track and I'm finding things. I'm like, this is – I just am nerding out. Like I'm loving it. Yeah, it's a huge nerd out yeah. world, the plant and mushroom world. Mm. It is. <laughs> and before we wrap up, maybe you can just let everyone know where to find you if they want more information. Yeah. Um, well, so a few ways. Um, I have a website. It's theforagersplate.com. I'm also on Instagram at theforagersplate and Facebook. Um, and we have the Forage and Grow New South Wales group, which is on Facebook. Um, again, I know it's totally naff, but super cool for the actual platform of the group. And it's a really great way to start the learning journey because you can just be observing as well without having to still in your own space and just like seeing what other people are finding currently as well. So it helps you to know what's seasonally available in your area as well. So it's a super cool way to do it. Mm. Um, but we, uh, I always have events coming up as well. I normally do a wild food event once a month. Um, where we do a foraging component. We also eat lots of yummy wild foods that I make for everyone together. Um, at the moment we're doing mushroom walks. Um, so everyone coming up the last weekend of May, um, that's in Cor- we're going in Corumban um, for that one and possibly some in June as well, hopefully that the mushroom season doesn't slow down too much when it gets too cold. But, yeah. Um, there's always events happening and there, there's we always promote other people's events that run um, – that run in the Northern Rivers. Um, there's also um, Belly of the World Mushrooms. Um, Martin Martini runs um, walks in the Northern Rivers and around Australia and he's one of been one of my mushroom mentors as well. Um, but, yeah, there's a few other people in the group too that run things. So there's always something coming up for people to learn and get involved in. Amazing. Amazing. I'll be there. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Chantel. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Road to Wisdom podcast. To join the journey, you can follow us on Instagram at theroadtowisdom.podcast and at www.theroadtowisdompodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to seeing you next week with more juicy content.